The Body Love Binge is the podcast for you if you're so done with living in the hellhole of an eating disorder, hating your body and constantly wishing you were thinner. If you're truly ready to heal from anorexia, bulimia or binge eating disorder and genuinely make friends with your body, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Victoria Kleinsman, a food freedom and body love coach, eating disorder and abuse survivor who's on an absolute mission to love and support millions of women to come back home to self-love and intuition eating. If it's possible for me, I know it's possible for you as well. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you in the episode. Hi, my queens. I've just finished recording this episode with Cindy. And I just want to speak to something before you listen. So Cindy focuses a lot on nutrition and nutritional education and all of that. And one of the reasons why I actually accepted her request to come on is because I don't usually have this type of guest come on because it can be triggering for those in eating disorder recovery for obvious reasons. However, I really feel that this conversation, although was or could be potentially triggering in some points. I think I did a good job of speaking to those points as the conversation was flowing. But just a little bit of a trigger warning, this episode is only really in alignment for someone who has definitely gone through most of their eating disorder recovery, who is eating unrestrictedly and has done for a while now and is wanting to naturally just move on to body nourishment and feeling physically good and vibrant in their bodies. It's definitely not for someone who has just started recovery or who is partway through recovery because as you know from me sharing, if you how do I say this? If you are judging what you're eating and trying to change what you're eating because you want to eat, quote, healthier, that can be triggering and actually send you backwards in recovery. So enjoy the episode. Really good conversation with Cindy. Um, I do actually ask her as well what her typical day of eating is, just because I felt called to ask her from what she was sharing. And in my opinion, that would have triggered me in the past because she naturally eats whole foods. She calls them real foods, not that processed foods aren't real foods, but I guess it depends on the way you look at it. So again, just listen with caution as you lap up Cindy's wisdom around nutrition and how she supports her clients. All right, loves, enjoy the episode. I love you. Welcome Queens to another episode. I have a guest with me today. I'm going to read her bio to you. I'm excited for this. Cindy is a registered holistic nutritionist, eating psychology counsellor and eating disorder recovery coach specializing in culinary and functional nutrition. While offering online and in-person workshops and cooking classes, individual counsel and retreats, she weaves her areas of expertise by infusing nutritional education with emotional and mental guidance and culinary passion. It is her mission to help individuals make realistic, long-term and sustainable life changes for thriving health. So Cindy, welcome to the Body Love Binge podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, let's dive in with the 10 quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, number one, your favorite food? 
Broccoli. Broccoli. Number two, sunrise or sunset? Oh, sunrise. Number three, dogs or cats? Dogs. Number four, hot or cold? Hot. Number six, describe yourself in three words. Passionate, genuine, kind. Mm, love those. If you became president tomorrow or prime minister tomorrow, what would you change about the world? Oh, wow. The, the vast um, difference between um, those that are financially set and those that are financially deprived. Mm, I love that. What does self-love mean to you? Putting yourself first, looking after yourself when your needs come forward and always tuning into um, what's happening within. Mm. What's your favorite smell? Cooking food. Mm. Mm -hmm. I go with that one. Cookies and anything sweet for me. Mm. <laughs> okay, number nine, you can have dinner with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would it be? It would be my family. Mm, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And last one, what do you want people to take away from the conversation we're about to have? That there are, all, are alternative supports out there for people who are struggling with dysfunctional relationships with food. Great. All right, Cindy, thank you for playing along with those. And my mm -hmm. first uh, official question to you is, what do you do? I know I've read your bio, but in your own words, like, what do you do? And why do you do what you do? How did you get to where you are now? Hmm. Um, I am predominantly a nutritionist and yet I'm also a, a coach at the same time. So I work one-on-one -on -one with my clients um, to rebuild positive, loving, sustainable relationships with food and body um, so that they can thrive. That's predominantly what I do. What brought me to this work is, you know, my entire life story Um where I struggled with food and my relationship with food and a dysfunctional relationship with food for most of my younger years. And, and then in my early thirties, I actually um, had colon cancer and I was on a bit of a different tra trajectory in my life. And uh, it, that really threw me a big curveball and also a massive opportunity to do something uh, different and more aligned with my life. So I started studying nutrition at that time and went down the, um, the path of becoming um, the support for people out there that I didn't have when I was younger um, and creating a really sustainable relationship with my own health so that I could um you provide help for others wow so how going back to your eating disorders when did they develop do you remember like the age and is, uh, did you ever find the reason why 
Um, I was a competitive gymnast for my younger years that started very young, about age six. And um, I was, I loved, I loved gymnastics. I was good at it. And it was a beautiful community for me. And when I left gymnastics in at about the age 14, 15, um, the onset of puberty came on really quickly because uh, it had been stunted from uh, being so physically active. And it, that I really threw me for a loop. And it's common with uh, aesthetic sports, gym, gymnasts, dancers, skaters, et cetera. And um, th that was really the catalyst for me. And I think coming out of a competitive sport, I didn't really have a lot of support with that transition. Mm -hmm. And so my community changed. It's also a very difficult time in a young girl's life. And um, I also had a very complicated relationship with my mother during that time. And so I just turned to the eating disorder to help myself cope and help myself find control during a difficult time in my life. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I believe that's kind of where it all began. Yeah. Would you say, so I'm assuming it was a restrictive, well, I believe all of them are restrictive eating disorders, but the typical anorexia type restriction, is that what you started with? I can't remember exactly if it started with restriction, likely it started with restriction. And then I actually turned to bulimia. Mm -hmm. I remember it being an interesting experience where I, some of the girls I was at camp one summer and some of the girls were um, kind of together purging in the bathroom and talking to each other about how to do that mm. and so that just became part of it for me and at first I think it was experimental and then it really became um a place I got anchored into yeah did you experience binges and then the purging because I'm curious and the reason I'm asking these questions obviously so many different people listen to this podcast and if they can resonate with your story I think that's always helpful to hear the power in someone else's story if you can resonate yeah I agree and I it's a beautiful thing to be able to share honestly and openly I think there's um there's a lot of people like you say looking to hear that um and yes for me it included binges uh absolutely because it was a restriction during the day mostly mm -hmm. um and in the beginning years, I was in high school, so I would just restrict and not eat all day long. And then um, when I had an opportunity, have a binging episode and a and a purge. And that was really the rhythm that I got into. Yeah, I'm sure. So many can relate and I can too. So going forward then in your life, when you were diagnosed with colon cancer when you were 30, how was your eating disorder then? Had you recovered then? Was you on the path to recovery? Do you mind speaking about that time of your life? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I was fairly recovered. I don't think I hadn't done a lot of the healing work. And yet some of the behaviors were uh, stabilized during that time. And I had actually, I was pregnant in 
um, I think I, I guess I was 29 when I got pregnant and the eating disorder really, uh, subsided during that time. Cause I was prior prioritizing my child. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was stable and yet not fully healed. And so, um, once I had my child and then he was about a year and a half when I had the colon cancer experience. And uh, that was a big aha moment, as Oprah would say, um, where I realized I hadn't fully done the healing around the eating disorder. And it was kind of my body's indication that um, it had been sick a long time. Mm-hmm. And it needed some healing and some attention and some um, rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I would like to go to that in a moment, but going back to your stabilization, but not fully recovered, that's really common. I see like people tend to get most of their life back, but there's still, you know, the rules, the fear of weight gain, not enjoying being in your body, all of that. How did you get to that stage? So what did you do from going from the full-blown eating disorder and the purging and the cycle to stabilization? I know obviously there's a lot to this, but what prominently did you do? Did you get help? Did you do it alone? Can you share that? Yeah, I like I think predominantly I did that alone. I um, did get help in my younger years. I saw a a nutritionist, which which was probably the most help I got um, or was most effective for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she tried to help me establish some more regular patterns around eating, but I really wasn't ready for the help when the help was offered to me during those younger years. And um, I was, I felt forced into it. It wasn't coming from me. And then um, when I I moved away from home and um, I kind of like, I had a few years where the eating disorder was really bad and at probably its worst in the beginning. And then I moved around a little bit with my, um, my partner at the time, who's my husband now. And I, I think, maturity and you know a loving and compassionate relationship and then also a community of some really good girlfriends and a job that I liked during that time in my life probably my late 20s brought me to a place of more stability Uh, it wasn't by any means very stable it was there was more stability during that time but the eating disorder definitely came and went yeah And what happened after you were diagnosed with the colon cancer, mentally, emotionally, physically, like what was your journey from there to where you are now? Um, I had, so when I was diagnosed with the colon cancer, I actually had a a flare in my appendix area just because of the location of the mass. And so I had a, a very invasive surgery And then I had the recovery from the surgery that came after that. And um, that was uh, very difficult. It was very traumatizing. And um, I, after that period of time, 
I started to really value my health. Mm -hmm. And so I started to become more physically active, being an athlete as a competitive gymnast as a child. Um, I realized I needed to bring back athleticism into my life because it was an important part of who I am. Um, and through that avenue, I found um, this holistic nutrition program and embarked on that. And meanwhile, after recovering from the surgery, I started to get some um, supportive health through help through acupuncture and cranial sacral therapy. And um, somewhere along the line, I did some counseling as well with a local woman here. And uh, it kind of all happened at once. Like it, it just poured and I went with it. And so I cried a lot and I spent a lot of introspective time. I joined women's circles and I studied and I looked after my baby at the same time. So it was really, and that took me years. That was probably two or more years, I would imagine, of a really intense healing and really intense learning. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, a lot of it happened on my own. And yet I, I made sure I had a support system there during that time. And that's really key, especially sisterhood circles and women's circles, just sharing and being held and understood without anyone trying to fix you like the masculine tries to tend to do. And just to be held and seen for who you are, that's very healing in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so do you think, I mean, this is quite a, a harsh question in a way, but do you think somehow from your past eating disorders, it was linked to the colon cancer somehow as in kind of a causation of that? What's your opinion on that? Absolutely, I do. I I think you go through a journey when you have cancer, um, although I can't speak for everybody, but for me, it was really, um, I got to a place where I'm like, you know, what did this, how did this happen? Mm. What did this come from? And did I cause this cancer, you know, and the, and the medical system was they called it sporadic. They said, you know, there's no reason why a 32-year-old woman should have colon cancer, and we don't really have the numbers to plug into a system for that. So we we have no insight for you on the cause. And yet I knew, I think I knew, and through, again, through the energy therapy that I was going through, we really tapped into the knowings of the body and a lot of old um, grief and trauma. And uh, I, I knew, you know, from a physical perspective that, you know, likely the lack of food, the lack of fiber, the lack of, uh, lack of nutrients for so long had uh, physiologically created illness in the bowels. And of course the purging as well, the binging and the purging um, creates a lot of damage in, in the intestinal system. And energetically and emotionally, I also knew that I had not looked after my body for so long. And, you know, I was so disconnected between my mental and my emotional and my physical um, that it, that is a part of the development of disease as well. So um, I, I knew, I, I just knew, and I knew there was a, um, 
that it was also, it took me a while to get to this place, but I knew that it was also a gift in the long run because it really pushed me down a new path with my life, which I'm really grateful for. Well, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that, Cindy. Mm -hmm. If someone, if a client came to you with disordered eating, dysfunctional eating, eating disorder, how would you, I know everyone is so different, but what are the type of modalities you would use to support that client with? Like, would it be body image, food behaviors, all of that together? Like, do you mind sharing what your process tack kind of looks like? Yeah, um, absolutely. I will, every, in, every client to me is a, is a new story. Um, I, I don't, as much as I use a lot of, um, some of the same tools and techniques with a, a lot of my clients, um, how I work with them is very individualized. So some of my clients really need a lot of nutritional guidance. They want me to teach them, you know, the basics of understanding food and nutrient assimilation and the workings of the digestive system, et cetera. And some clients really need more support with their mental shifts or with their emotional guidance. Some clients just need um, for someone to hold space for them. And um, so I really work intuitively in that way. And, and that being said, I use as many modalities as I can. So I always use nutrition because I feel as though a lot of people who are trying to uh, recreate a, a better relationship with food, it helps them to understand some of the fundamental workings of nutrition, what food is all about, you know, how we became the eaters that we are now, the influence of the food industry. And I'm very um, gentle and cautious uh, when I'm working with my dysfunctional eating clients. So we do a lot of nutrition work and I do a lot of um, helping them find a rhythm that they feel comfortable with and helping them adjust that they're, the foods that they're eating again in a way that they feel comfortable with. And then um, I use a lot of mind shift techniques. So we just talk about, you know, how to recreate new neural pathways in the brain around food, around eating, around old traumas. And then uh, we work with the emotions and with the heart. And sometimes that looks like, again, um, holding space for clients to talk about um their struggles, their emotional challenges around food. And sometimes it's, a, it's about, um, you know, helping them develop a love for food in a new way. And yeah. then oftentimes I am outsourcing as well. So some of my clients also go to see a clinical counselor. Um, I, if there's energetic, um, issues happening. I will also outsource to someone who does energy therapy, like Chinese medicine, acupuncture, etc. cetera. Um, and I'm always nurturing the nervous system because when there's been a past dysfunction, uh, there's always issues with the nervous system. And, you know, we just, we're up against a lot of anxieties these days and the nervous system really needs nurturing and looking after. So I'm always um, advocating for nervous system nourishing practices like yoga and, and meditation and nature walks, et cetera. Um, 
yeah, so there's always a lot going on. And uh, I, I like to say that I come at it from as many sides as I possibly can. And I think that really helps the clients feel um, stable and supported in a well-rounded way. Yeah, I love your holistic approach. And I'm the same as you with outsourcing and bringing all different kinds of modalities modalities into it in a child's healing, emotional release, the nutrition part, all of it. So my next question, Cindy, is how would you help support a client who, let's say a client comes to you who had eating disorders in the past and is now kind of more in tune with intuitive eating, yet they're eating a lot of processed foods that don't make them feel great physically in the body and in the mind. But every time they've attempted to change that, they fall back into diet mentality, feeling shame, feeling guilt, binging, and then the cycle starts to perpetuate a little bit. How would you support that type of client? Yeah, so one of the ways that I will start working with someone who has um, those kind of tendencies is uh, adding in adding in food. So I call it the add in as opposed to the removal. So for a lot of people who have had a dysfunctional past with food, they're very scared of uh, restriction and removal. And so, and so I will start by, again, the education piece around nourishing the body, nourishing the shell, the cells, the organs, the mind, and how you know, real food can really help look after stabilizing those Mm -hmm. kinds of tendencies for us. And once the body's nourished, we have less of a tendency towards imbalance in general, because we feel more, more stable. So that education piece is really important. And then I work on bringing in more nutrients. So for a lot of these clients that feel, um, imbalanced, it's because they are undernourished. Even if they're eating a lot of food, they can still be very undernourished because if we're eating a lot of processed food, to-go foods, fast food, um, there may be a lot of calories going in, um, but they're not the right kinds of calories and we're not getting, we're not meeting the body's needs. So I try to look at meeting the body's needs by adding in. And the magic in this is that naturally, most often, clients start to work their way away from the processed foods and the to-go foods, simply because the body is becoming more nourished, and they are feeling more stable. And as we do this, the palate starts to change, and the mentality starts to change, and those neural pathways start to develop in a different way. And, and I find a lot of that happens on its own, which is a really beautiful thing because it feels like it's coming from them, but, and it is, it is coming from them. Yeah. Instead of me saying, you know, let's take out a, B and C because you'll feel a lot better. um, It's not a, it's not a sustainable place to start with people who've had a dysfunctional past. So I like to add in really good foods. I like to incorporate also, you know, 
peaceful techniques around food, really nurturing, you know, in nurturing the intuitive eating self and also helping them to feel more relaxed when they're eating. Yeah. I use breath work te- techniques in and around food, um, actual meal times before, sometimes after. And then we integrate things where maybe we recreate, recreate their pattern throughout the day so that, um, that we look at their volatile times and put placeholders there so that they can help to feel more stable during those volatile times and start to look after, you know, nourishing the self and developing more self-love techniques that help them through that time where they're like, this is the moment when I'm going to, you know, find myself at the donut counter. Um, And instead we put a placeholder there. So, you know, goes back to replacing habits with other habits, right? So as much of those as I can, and again, it's very individualized. So it doesn't always work in the same way for one person as it works for another. Um, And yet I find when we rebuild from one, from the angle of adding in and looking after the self, the negative habits and behaviors, they kind of start to move out on their own and it's gradual. It has to be gradual because the abrupt changes just don't work for these kinds of clients. Yeah. And I I would assume like from practicing from a place of non-judgment as well, if they do continue choosing the processed food, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But perhaps if you add this in, you might feel better. And then just like you say, very gradually just, come to a natural balance, holistic way of being, I feel like I've got two words that have come into mind, intuitive eating with intention Mm -hmm. to support and nourish the body. And before I ask my next question, I do want to just speak to my listeners for a moment and make this really clear because I have a lot of listeners who are in anorexia recovery, uh, bulimia recovery, who will might cling on to this conversation and then start judging themselves for eating donuts when actually that's probably exactly what they should be doing until the weight restored and until all of that. So just speaking to those of you that are listening and the eating disorder is latching onto this with seeing it as permission to restrict. No, this is not permission to restrict. This is, I guess, the next stage when you're more a bit stable and you're wanting to nourish your body and you've let go of all the restriction and the shame and the fear around eating in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to further that, I like that you bring that up. That's important. And to further that there's always, there's always an important takeaway in those moments. And so if, if the donuts are, are coming into, um, your day there's learning there there's always learning there so what am I trying to fulfill and what's being fulfilled by the donuts and and that's maybe it's not wrong because there's a teaching there there's a learning lesson there and it's never wrong to reach for the thing that's working for you in the moment yes And, and yet it's an opportunity to learn every time. And sometimes the body might actually want and prefer the quick calorie sugar 
depending on the person, depending on the body, all of that. Because when I was in recovery, if I tried not to have the processed foods, I would end up eating it even more and feeling bad about it and restricting anyway. So the more I allowed it and then started adding nourishing nourishment in, everything, like you said, starts to just naturally just even itself out. So thank you for speaking to that. And I'm curious, I don't normally ask this question because it can be triggering for some, but I'm curious just for myself as well. What type of a typical day for yourself, obviously with no amounts given or numbers or anything like that, what's like a typical day's eating for you where you would look at that and say that is like a really self-loving, nourishing day of food? What does that look like for you? Because I'm curious. For me personally or for, okay. Um, yeah, I actually eat a lot. (laughs) I love to eat. I always have loved to eat. I I think it just, I got, I got caught up in, um, the dysfunction for a while and, uh, a typical day looks like, um, I, I usually, I go for some kind of, um, time outside in the morning and then I have a smoothie or I have um, some eggs and kimchi and salad and something yummy and um, I usually I have a snack mid-morning something small and I eat a big salad for lunch and I usually have an afternoon snack and then we have a dinner together that varies um, we eat out of the garden a lot. I shop at local um, farmers markets a lot. Um, we locally source as much as possible. We live in an area where there's a lot of um, growers here, which is really amazing. And um, I also really eat intuitively. So if I'm very active one day, um, my volumes are going to change. I don't pay attention to volumes. I go with what my body is looking for and I eat predominantly real food as much as I can. And yet nothing's off the table. Um, I just know what works for my body and what doesn't work for my body. And so the foods that I don't eat, it's simply because they are troublesome for me. Yeah. Um, physically, but I, I have an intake of food every two to three hours and that really works well for me. And, and I'm also a very active person. So I do need a lot of caloric intake regularly throughout the day. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And let's move now on to body image, because if you was to guess a percentage of how many of your clients that come to you with food, dysfunctional relationship with food, struggle with the way their body looks what percentage would you guess with your clientele base right now that struggle with body image? Hmm. Um, 80 to 90%. It's pretty rare that uh, a client with a dysfunctional food relationship, current or past, doesn't also struggle with body image. It does happen. Um, yeah. It does happen, but the, the percentage is quite high. Yeah. How do you help your clients navigate that? Because for me, it was that was it. The, my biggest fear was gaining weight. And I knew that when I was in the eating disorder, I knew that I wasn't at my natural healthy weight that my body wanted to be at, hence the restriction. How do you help clients overcome their bodies changing when they're nourishing themselves and recovering? Mm-hmm. 
Well, one of the main ways I do this is I encourage embodiment practices. And so anything that can bring the person into their body and experience their body in um, a connective way, in a loving way, really helps support uh, more positive body image tendencies. Mm -hmm. So that will look like, you know, dance is an avenue that I use a lot and that works for a lot of um, women, especially. Uh, dancing, yoga, again, meditation, breath work, walking and into you know getting into the body as much as possible so embodiment is definitely an area I work with a lot um we also use journal at uh, the journal practices and I have worksheets that I that I give to my clients that help them um bring attention to different areas of their body and also help cultivate the self-love and self-esteem, self-confidence. Um, I, I also often am helping my clients find, outsource an avenue that's like I mentioned in the beginning, like a women's circle or a group where they can get together with other people in a circle that is a supportive environment. And sometimes this can be a yoga class or a dance class. So that's there as well. Um, Sometimes I will um, help my clients to uh, make plans to go shopping and mm -hmm. uh, get some new clothes that fit them well and make them feel beautiful. We do a lot of self-love practices. So, um, you know, that can be, again, recreating those new neural pathways in the brain and coming up with positive affirmations that they tell themselves regularly. Sometimes I'll have them, you know, write themselves little love notes, on post-it notes for the bathroom and the steering wheel, etc. cetera. Um, so there's a lot of different things, I guess, coming into play there. And uh, I've, you know, again, it's for, it's individualized. I had one client who um, she was very creative and she wasn't she hadn't been utilizing her creativity for a long time. And I see this a lot in my practice as I sure, I'm, I'm sure you do as well, where um, it, the person has forgotten kind of their passionate side mm -hmm. and their creative side, because they've lost themselves to this dysfunction for a long time. And so helping them to get back to the things that really light them up and make them feel excited and make them feel progressive and um like they're like they're contributing to something um beautiful mm -hmm. and so um this woman she did a painting for her kitchen a huge painting that was it represented self-love and it she did it with her daughters and they posted it up in the kitchen and for her that was a really um beautiful way to remind herself every single day about loving herself and loving her body and having that, you know, be a priority for her. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of different practices. So it's hard for me to answer, you know, ABC, because I don't feel like it always works that way. Um, yeah. For me coming back personally, for me coming back into athleticism and 
into athleticism in a new way. Yeah. A very respectful, kind, intuitive, loving way um, was really healing for me, for my own body image issues and also coming back into dance as well, because I was a gymnast. I was also, I went into dance as well, younger years. And so coming back into those passions in a new way as an adult in an adult body was really healing for my own body image. So I often use those practices with my clients, but again, it depends on who they are. Some of them, some of them don't really, they're not feeling called to the movement as much as others. Uh, so for some, it's more of like uh, meditating, meditating on it and bringing in those self-love practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So I'm hearing it's a lot of emphasis holistically, obviously being in the body, building that connection and relationship with the body instead of objectifying it and taking the attention away from what it looks like and how you feel in it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's uh, a really great example for this is um, in, in my work, I will often um, with certain clients, we will um, talk about putting away the scale. And part of the, um, the encouragement that I give around that is that the scale perpetuates this this outside influence, this way of saying, this is how I feel about myself is the number that the scale gives me. And it comes from the outside. And if we take the scale out of the equation and we get up in the morning and we stand on our own two feet, take a big deep breath, maybe do a stretch and take a moment to check in, then, then we can get a, a reading on how we're doing from the inside. Mm. And the more we can get a reading on how we're doing from the inside, like you say, the less emphasis that we will put on the readings from the outside. Yeah, I think that's so important. That was something that really helped me was to practice dropping all the external stuff that was keeping me stuck and just practice being in a body, having a body, not really focusing on the image that came a bit later with the body positivity and all of that, but just actually dropping from my head into my actual body and walking, which I do and have done every day, but actually being in your body when you're walking and actually noticing nature and not just, again, living in your head, counting calories and all of that. It's really Mm -hmm. healing. It's really healing. And I, I find um, I've done these practices with my clients as well, because it's something I've developed on my own. I find I also walk a lot in nature and I find that I am often doing things with my hands or my feet or I'll develop a rhythm or I swing my arms or stomp my feet or I scuff my feet. Mm-hmm. And it is this practice of pulling the energy in pulling the energy down from up in the head and into the body. And sometimes, you know, you're, I'm swinging out a frustration or I'm stomping out something that feels difficult. And sometimes I'm just enjoying the movement of my body of my hands or the rhythm, you know, and those very simple practices 
anything that pulls that energy from being up in that kind of busy spot above mm. the head down into the body um yeah encourages that deeper connection with the self that we're really which is the seat the root of creating you know a, a more joyful relationship more positive more loving relationship with the body mm-hmm. yeah I love that how would you support someone who is constantly apart from the amazing embodiment practices you've shared with us about being in the body if someone's looking in a mirror and seeing their body and they hate the way it looks and they're having all this shame around it and they're planning on restricting because that relieves anxiety in the moment because it's quote doing something about it what kind of mirror work with mindset if any that do you bring together to help a client feel neutral and accepting of their body even if they don't like the way it physically looks yeah mirror work I don't actually use that often in my practice I have I find it can be very tricky and uh triggering for people and um so there's a couple ideas that I have. Uh, the first is to um, cover up big mirrors in the house. If they're really big and they're intrusive and they're bothersome to either get rid of them or cover them up for at least a time. And in a smaller mirror, focus on your eyes and focus on your face and focus on as well, putting a little, you know, um, self-assurance or awareness quote on the mirror and taking a deep breath in the mirror and then we can graduate into um, pulling down a covered mirror potentially um, and moving through the body so putting putting focus on the throat and giving the throat love and appreciation and then and so on and moving through different parts of the body and radiating energy at the same time trying to you know pull on the energy of the the universe but also you know from within and putting love into your shoulders and appreciation into your shoulders and then working your way down through the body in a very slow process I do find that it is diff- it can be really difficult work for people and I also come up with a lot of resistance with mm-hmm. this one and so you know in in some of my teaching we talked about at you know doing recreating sort of positive relationships with the body with um, a naked body in front of the mirror or in your bathing suit or your bra and underwear and um that I I just haven't incorporated it into my practice that much because I find that there's just so much resistance to it that I would I prefer to do the work from the inside um yeah so I don't know how much that that helps yeah so I understand that and I started to avoid mirrors at the beginning of my recovery and then I found that it made it worse for me because I was avoiding. And then when I did see myself accidentally somewhere, it would be like, oh my God, who who is that body? That's not mine. So it had this massive shock effect. So what helped me was a lot of exposure therapy. And it was so challenging. And especially at the beginning, I hated it, but I 
kept persevering and that was really beneficial. So I would be naked most of the time. I'd do yoga naked in front of the mirror, practicing noticing and then noticing what I was making it mean about what I was noticing. So I was like being the observer of all the judgments, all the, Mm. I don't like this, that's fat, that's horrible. And just noticing it all and meeting myself with love as I was seeing my physical body, but you're right. It's, it can be very, very triggering. And I love the practice, what you shared, because I do this with my clients too, that every single part of your body, forgiving yourself for every time you've rejected that part and sending it so much love. And I advise, especially at the beginning, low lighting, you know, some candles maybe, or if you can dim the lights, dim the lights, some soft music, other than just like going in a changing room where every part of cellulite is like highlighted on your entire body. And it's like a traumatic experience to support yourself in an environment when you're actually going to do the mirror work, because it's not about how your body looks at all. But for me, a big part of it was seeing my body and just being okay with that without trying to run away from it or avoid it. If that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that with me. That's that's a great. I mean, I can imagine how therapeutic that mm-hmm. that really could be for people. And we, um, I guess, I have worked more on the clinical side with the negative self talk, and yes. you know, we do a lot of work in session and out of session as homework on the negative self talk and challenging it and rewriting it in this loving way but I I appreciate the integration of also the mirror work I can see how effective that could be yeah especially and difficult it's difficult it's very difficult that's why I think it makes sense for you to like you've shared to have the embodiment piece first so otherwise if the embodiment piece isn't practiced someone will go to a mirror have a massive trauma response just disassociate be in the head and then you know, you're not really progressing. So the embodiment piece is really important. And with mindset work, with thoughts especially, there's a saying that I absolutely love. And I believe I got this, a variation of this from Byron Katie, who I'm, you must have heard of maybe, I'm assuming that you've heard of her. And I say it like this. So behind every uncomfortable feeling, there is a thought that is not true for us. Mm. And so anytime we feel anything other than peace, love, acceptance, that kind of those kind of flavors of emotions, which is who we really are, if we don't feel those things, it's like a beautiful reminder of like, oh, wait, there must be a thought that's preceded this feeling that actually is not serving me. That's not true for me. And then I can then go to my mind and then with curiosity be like, oh, because I was resisting this experience and I was thinking this because everything is a story that we tell ourselves anyway, whether positive or negative. So we may as well tell ourselves a story that serves us and brings us back to peace and love. And that's what I did around my body. So if I ever felt tension or shame or disgust looking at myself, I would be like, okay, well, what am I thinking that is causing me to feel that way? And it, of course, you start off not believing your thoughts because if you just start off by saying, I'm okay as I am and you don't believe that, it feels like you're lying to yourself. And then that's where the work is like underneath all of that. But it's very powerful to use mindset when you've become embodied because you can't mindset your way out of a trauma response. No matter how hard we try, it just doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, so true. 
Yeah, I love that. Oh, Byron Katie, all the important messages. She's a legend. Yeah, (laughs) so good. I would, sorry, go on, Cindy. That's okay. I would love for you to, as we wrap up, speak to how you support women. So you have retreats, you do coaching or counseling, you have groups, like what kind of, without telling us all the secrets, what can we expect if we was to come to one of your retreats? Um, one of our, the retreats are uh, really transformational. A lot happens at a retreat and the magic is in the teaching and yet it's predominantly in the cohesive and the collective that is built um, throughout the weekend amongst the women. Yeah. Um, and it's not always just women, but predominantly it is women. And these connections that are made through holding space for each other and um allowing the healing to come forward so the retreats of course involve nutritional teaching and um, usually body work and often I have dance yoga as well and nourishing food and of course you know relaxation breath work techniques meditation guided meditations those kinds of um, those kinds of offerings that all center around healing the food relationship and the relationship with the body and the self. But the magic is really about allowing space for the healing to happen in a very supportive and loving and beautiful environment. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And how do you work with clients now online as well as in person? Like how does your coaching counseling practice work? Predominantly, our my sessions have gone online since COVID. We, we just that's kind of the trend. Uh, but I do um, do in person sessions as well with my local clients if that's what they prefer. So I'm available in both ways. And just re my no, this was not recorded when I asked you where are you from in the world? If people are in your area. Mm-hmm. I'm in British Columbia, um, Canada. So I'm in the a tiny little mountain town uh, just outside of Nelson, BC, an area that we refer to as the Kootenays. Um, so yeah, BC. That sounds gorgeous. And is there anything that I've not asked you, Cindy, that you'd like to speak to or share before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So, well, thank you for your time and your wisdom and answering all the questions. And yeah, if our listeners have any questions, can they reach out to you on where's the best place, Instagram, Facebook, email? Uh, Any of those will work. Um, I also have a a website that I'm on all the time and is updated. So if anyone wants to read more about the work that I do or my upcoming programs, it's all on the website, which is cindyspratt.com. But Instagram, Facebook, email, all good ways to get a hold of me. Mm -hmm. And I'll obviously link everything below so they can just access you easily and click on it. So thank you again, Cindy. Thank you. Good. And listeners, I will see you next week. Much love. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe and leave me a five-star review. Your support means the absolute world to me and it really does help me to get my podcast out there for those that need it. Thank you.